If you had the opportunity to write your autobiography, what would you include in it? Some of you say, well, it would be a pretty short book. Let me put it that way. Well, think about what you would include in an autobiography. You'd probably put where you were born, the kind of family that you were born into, the work that you had, the things that you did in life, the places that you went. If you're married, you talk about your spouse. If you have kids, you talk about them. A good autobiography also, of course, includes some exciting things, right? Accolades or awards or some sort of achievement that whoever we're reading about has has appreciated or or enjoyed. Uh, Maybe you talk about famous people that you know or ways in which you touched other people's lives. How many of us would include the hard stuff, though? How many of us would detail the failures in our lives? How many of us would identify those moments in our life where we missed an opportunity? Where we didn't comprehend what was going on around us? I think most of us just want to skip over all of that. We don't even like thinking about it. Much less would we want somebody else to know what kind of failure we were. The only time that we might include a story about failure is if it's a failure we eventually overcome. If it's a way that we have snatched victory out of the jaws of defeat. If it's a way that reflects properly on us. One of the ways that we know the story about our lives is true, however, is if it includes not just all the great things that we've done, but also those embarrassing parts. Those parts that don't make us look very good. And I think that's what we have here in John chapter 21. A week outside the resurrection and the disciples are fishing. I don't know about you, but if I was there and my master, my rabbi, the one that I identified as God incarnate... Raised from the dead, I'd probably be looking for office space in downtown Jerusalem. I'd probably be trying to send out advanced agents of the resurrection to Galilee and to Rome. And yet these men have fled a city, still a danger to them. And they have returned to a life they knew because they were confounded by a new life they couldn't understand. I don't think the disciples know quite what to do with the resurrection. Maybe that resonates with you. Maybe you find yourself in a similar place. You sometimes think that you're missing something when it comes to Jesus. You believe all the right things. If someone comes up to you on Christmas and says, Christ is risen, you know how to respond. He is risen indeed. And yet you're not quite sure what to do with that fact that he is risen indeed. Because if you're to tell the truth, you're still in the same boat today that you were in yesterday. Facing the same problems. Hoping the same hopes. Fearing the same fears. Dreaming the same dreams. You know that everything changed because Jesus was raised from the dead. But everything around you still seems the same. The resurrection 
changed everything and nothing all at the exact same time. A week after the resurrection, Pilate is still the governor of Judea. Caiaphas is still the high priest. The sun has risen, the sun has set day after day. And now Peter and the other disciples are off fishing. Even though everything around them seems to be the same, they have changed. They don't quite understand it yet. But that's what the revelation of Jesus to them will help them see. That they have changed. And friends, that's what I want you to see this morning too. That because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, even if everything around you seems to be the same, you have changed. Jesus begins, and our story begins at verse 1, with the disciples being met by Jesus exactly where they're at. They are at the Sea of Tiberias, another name for the Sea of Galilee, verse 1. And Jesus comes and finds them. And he meets them in their failure. Look at verse, the end of verse 3. Here are these experienced fishermen who have spent their lives on this lake. And yet, after an entire night of fishing, they caught nothing. I don't think it's too much reading into this text to see that their failed fishing is a picture of their failed discipleship. Peter has denied him. Thomas didn't believe. On the night that Jesus was crucified, everyone fled, so no one really has a leg to stand on. They've been living in fear, and now these experienced fishermen go off into the night to fish a lake that they knew well, and they've got nothing to show for it. Folks, even after the resurrection, the picture that we have of the disciples is a group of men who are totally and completely unable to do anything apart from Jesus Christ. And that's exactly where Jesus wants them to be. And that's exactly where he wants you and me to be, too. The new creation that dawns with the resurrection isn't anything that we acquire by our own success in life. We don't win the resurrection life. It doesn't come by trying harder or gaining victory or being better. The resurrection doesn't exist somewhere out there north of Georgetown and we've just got to go find it. No. There's no pathway to that life from where you are. Jesus has to bring it to you. He has to give you the resurrection life. It's not something that you can rise up and seize by your own power. And folks, this is hard for us to comprehend because so much of our life is built on a, an existence that we cobble together, that we're proud of, that we try to protect because it's what we have done. Jesus comes and says, that's not real life. I'm going to give you something that supersedes that life. I'm going to give you something that is better than that life. The disciples have reached the end 
of the life that they have cobbled together. There is nowhere else for them to go. Even the old standby of fishing has proven to be an empty well for them. They have no resources to fall back on. They have no victory to claim. They have no strength. It's been a long and frustrating night. But at the break of day, a voice calls out from the shore. Hey, y'all. Have you caught anything? In the first service, I paused after saying, hey. I said, hey. And then a little voice from the back said, hey, back to me. So, <laughs> Children, have you caught any fish? And the answer back from the boat is no. It's a simple question that Jesus asked his disciples, but it seems designed to help the disciples, and I think designed for you and me, to see the futility of life without Jesus. You went back to something you were comfortable with. You went back to something you're good at. You went to a safe place. Something that you could call your own. How's that working out for you? Is it everything that you thought it was going to be? Is it fulfilling? Is it even meeting your basic human needs? No. Then in verse 6, Jesus gives the disciples the dumbest suggestion I've ever heard. Try the other side. Jesus, have you ever been fishing? Like, that's not how this works. It's the same fish all right there. If they didn't come up from one side, they're not going to come up from the other side. But of course, Jesus isn't giving the disciples fishing advice, is he? It's a miracle, a miracle that is designed to reveal Jesus to his disciples, to remind them that nothing they can naturally accomplish in this life will equal the resurrection life that he has introduced. He meets them in their need and he provides for them above and beyond what they ever thought was capable. The catch is enormous. They're not even able to haul it in. But of course, the point isn't the fish. The point is the fishermen. They recognize Jesus through the miracle. He's the only one who can fill their lives, not just with fish, but with promise, with blessing. Verse 7, John recognizes Jesus. It's the Lord, he says. And so Peter naturally gets dressed and jumps in the water. He swims for shore. Peter's autobiography would read pretty entertainingly, I think. The scene quickly shifts from the boat to the shore, verse 9, where Jesus is already making breakfast. Why is he making breakfast for the disciples? I don't know about you, but I would get hungry after a long night of failed fishing. Jesus is meeting the disciples at their point of need. Friends, too often when you and I think about life with Jesus, we think about like going off into the woods and contemplating spiritual things. 
When Jesus wants you to think about the resurrection life, he wants you to think about fish and bread, a charcoal fire on the side of a lake. He wants you to think about real life. This life that Jesus offers to us, it's not just for the sweet by and by when we cross over the heavenly shore. It's not just about heaven. The life that he offers us is a life for today. Of eating and drinking, of love and laughter, of sorrow and pain. It's living in light of the good news that Jesus has risen from the dead. It's living in the victory that Jesus has accomplished for us over sin and death. And sometimes when we're in the middle of that real life, we even have to come face to face with our failure, with our pain, and with our sorrow. See, it'd be easy if all we had to do is segment the resurrection life, the heavenly life over here, and we dabble in that on a Sunday, well, we almost never have to think about the things that trouble us. But the resurrection life is what animates our everyday life. So Jesus brings Peter to a point that he has to recognize and deal with the failure that dominated the night that Jesus was betrayed. Look at verses 15 through 17 with me. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Three times Jesus penetrates Peter's heart. Three times Jesus recommissions Peter for ministry in the kingdom of God. Three times Peter or Jesus absolves Peter of his sin. Three times Jesus initiates Peter into the resurrection life. Why three times? You know. It's because Peter denied Jesus three times. Peter is confronted with his greatest failure. And instead of hearing the voice of condemnation, he is given life. Resurrection life. He is met by a Savior who equips him to minister to people out of that place of sin and failure and brokenness. Jesus brings Peter to the point of despair so that he will never again look to himself for strength for life, for standing. No. Now his only confidence is in the resurrection life 
that Jesus has given to him. I want you to recognize this. You've got to think, based on your own experience, that the voice that Peter heard in his head day after day, day after day, was the voice of his own denial. Jesus repeats this commission three times so that the voice Jesus will hear in, or that Peter will hear instead is Jesus' voice of forgiveness and recommissioning and being sent out to serve. Let me ask you, whose voice are you listening to today? Whose voice are you listening to in the places of failure in your life? Some of you are having failed health and you're despairing. Failed emotions. Failed relationships. Failed marriage. Failed parenting. Failed finances. Failed faith. Nobody has to come up to you and remind you of your failure. You see it clearly every day. Whatever voice you are listening to is setting the course of your life. It's establishing its trajectory. In the place of your greatest failure, whose voice do you hear? Do you hear the voice of condemnation? Or do you hear the voice of the one who calls failures in to eat breakfast? One author I read this week defines forgiveness as the wonder of being trusted in the very place of my failure. The wonder of being trusted in the very place of my failure. That's what Peter receives. In the very place that he failed Jesus, he is being entrusted to go out as his herald, as his ambassador, as an under-shepherd to take care of the lambs. This is the center of the resurrection life. To be raised from our death into the fullness and the newness of life. To have the record of Jesus, his perfect righteousness, given to us. This is what changes Peter. Peter is a different man from here on out. He is now free to live. He's no longer under the condemnation of his failure or the fear of death. He sees that his failure is not the final act of his relationship with God. But now a new life empowers him and animates him for service in the kingdom of God. That's the foundation for Jesus' command in verse 19. When he tells Peter, follow me. Friends, don't read that command and say, okay, now Peter, you got to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, buddy. Now it's time to get to work and show me that this forgiveness was well earned. Peter, I have paved the way past sin and death, past Satan and misery. I have achieved the victory 
follow after me. This is the change the resurrection makes for you and me too. Maybe the things around you are still the same. But Christ has forgiven you in all the places of your failure. And he empowers you in all the places of your weakness. Because of the resurrection, death is not the last word. Not the final death that we all must face, nor the daily death that so often weighs us down. Even now, in your everyday life, you can know the power of Jesus. You can know the grace of Jesus. You can know the life of Jesus. Oh, Eric, man, I want to know that. I want to believe that what you're saying is true, but it feels so far away. And sometimes I wake up and I don't feel like I know the power or the presence of Jesus in my life at all. There is a tension. There's a tension that we will feel in this life for the rest of our lives. Because we live between the times. We live between the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our own resurrections. And that in-between time will be filled with this sense of tension between the promise and the reality of the resurrection life and the fullness of that life. You see, this life that you live right now, it is not the life that you have always known. Nor is it the life that you will one day know. We live between the first fruits and the harvest. And sometimes this in-between life, it will be filled with pain and suffering. And that's what Jesus tells Peter he's in for at verse 18. Someone's going to take you where you don't want to go, Peter. But do you notice that Jesus doesn't promise to fix the pain and suffering for Peter? He's going to be there with him, sustaining him through it but it's still pain and suffering that he has to undergo. Sometimes this everyday life, it's, it's filled with joy and opportunities for ministry and longevity and health. And that seems to be what Jesus is telling John. Awaits John in verse 22. But don't think that those gracious gifts of God are actually resurrection life. That's not the fullness. The life we now live in its joys and its disappointments, in its sorrows and its hopes, it's not the end. Later in his life, the Apostle Peter will describe believers as sojourners and exiles who are homesick for our true homeland, the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. But he doesn't say just hunker down and wait for that day to happen. No. We can continue on in this earthly pilgrimage that Jesus has called us to.
knowing that he has not abandoned us. Again, later in his life, Peter will tell the church that we've been born again, not just to a hope for the last day, but to an inheritance that we can know in part right now. Yes, it's being kept for us, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. But it's also the strength from which we draw our own strength. So friends, the command of verse 19 is the command that we are left with as well. Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus even when life around you still seems to be the same. Follow Jesus even through the pain and the suffering of life. Follow Jesus when life is good and when life is hard. Because you're following him straight into the dawn of the new creation. You're following the one who John told us at the very beginning of his gospel was the light who was the life of men. That light has dawned on you and that life belongs to you. Let's pray. Father, so much of our life is hard for us to understand, even with these promises. And so I pray that in the midst of our everyday life, you would give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear how your Holy Spirit is drawing us toward Jesus. Allow us to follow him in his victory over sin and death, even in all the painful, embarrassing places of failure in our lives. And Lord, no matter what lies ahead, give us a clear vision for who Jesus is, so that believing in him, we might have life in his name. It's in his name we pray. Amen.